Hi, I'm Brian Nash, and I'm back for season two of How We Got Here. After a long hiatus, uh, I'm back after a summer and fall, and um, as we begin the head in the winter, uh, talk about Atlantic Canadian, our ancestors, our history, our communities. Um, Going to be doing a few things different and a few things the same this year, and um, starting off this week, I'm going to be doing something the same. I've had him on the show before, Brian McConnell. He's a uh, retired lawyer, a genealogist, and author. Um, I'm going to be talking about his latest book, Loyal and True, which is about the Loyal Orange Lodge in Torbrook, Nova Scotia, which is in Annapolis County. Um, Brian is a great friend of the podcast. He's been on a few times, and I had a really good, interesting discussion with him about the, this book, about the Orange Lodge in general, and the role they played in many communities in Atlantic Canada. Um, the Orange Lodge, if you don't know much about it, uh, we've had four Prime Ministers of Canada. The, the last Prime Minister of Canada to be a member of the Orange Lodge was Keith uh, the Chief, John Deacon Baker. So let's get started with episode one of season two. Welcome to How We Got Here, a genealogy podcast hosted by Brian Nash, exploring the tools, tips, and resources for genealogists from Atlantic Canada and family historians from around the globe who are researching their ancestors from Atlantic Canada. Every family has a story, so stick around as Brian and his guests Share the unique family stories that help shape the history and culture of Atlantic Canada. I'd like to welcome my guest once again, Brian McConnell. And today we're going to be talking about a book he wrote about the Orange Lodge in Torbrook, Nova Scotia, and just the Orange Lodge in general. Um, going to talk a little bit about the history of it, the history of it in um, Atlantic Canada and Canada, and um, what type of uh, information we can find out about our, our family, about our community's histories um, through, through the Orange Lodge and um, how they were actually part of, a very active part of many communities in um, Atlantic Canada. Um, so thanks for coming on, Brian. I, I do appreciate it. Uh, you know, I always do. I, I enjoy having you. I enjoy um, talking with you um, every time. So do you want to give a little bit of introduction, a little maybe a, about the Orange Lodge and um, even sort of how it came to Atlantic Canada? Sure, Brian. Um, I, I'm always happy to, to speak on historical subjects of particular interest to me and, and full disclosure uh, with the Orange Lodge, uh, my grandfather was a member in Ireland and then when they immigrated to Canada, uh, he was a member in Toronto. Uh, in doing genealogy and family research on my mother's side, I discovered that as well, some of her uh, great grandparents who had come from Ireland had belonged to lodges in Ontario, and a distant cousin belonged to the Ladies Lodge called the Ladies Orange Benevolent Association. And when she moved out to Saskatchewan, she helped to found an orphanage that was 
originally a Protestant orphanage that was started up in Indian Head. It still exists, it's called Orange Homes. But at one time in Canada in the early 1900s, one in four Protestants belonged to uh, the Orange Lodge. And originally these lodges were brought to Canada largely uh, with the British military, uh, a men's lodge that uh, had organized in Armagh, Ireland, um, initially in the, in the 1700s. And the first members of the lodge were all so Masons. So they incorporated into the lodge ritual uh, degrees similar to degrees that exist in the Masonic Lodge, except that the degrees in the orange, uh, it was focused on, on Protestants, were all based on stories from the Bible. So it, it's in more recent times, I've almost thought of this as a, um, uh, a men's Bible club <laughs> in terms of uh, what it accomplished. And in doing research, many of the lodges, uh, each lodge had a president, a secretary, and a chaplain. Uh, lodge meetings began with um, scripture and a reading from the Bible. And quite commonly, the, the chaplain was the local Methodist or Presbyterian or Anglican, Anglican minister. And in many towns and villages, the lodge met before a hall was built in one of the Protestant churches. I've been drawn to do a book recently on uh, a lodge in Nova Scotia, a lodge in Torbrook Mines, because through research in, in cemeteries, I also have done a lot of loyalist research, member of the United Empire Loyalist Association and active with that. Uh, I became aware of two rare stones in Nova Scotia side by side, uh, two Orangemen. And nowhere else does this exist in Canada, possibly in the world. And they were both erected by their lodge, a lodge that hasn't existed now for almost 100 years. So this really intrigued me, and I did further investigation. Okay. Um, so the Orange Lodge was, you know, like you said, similar to the Masons. Um, it sounds like they sort of did away with some of the mysticism and other stuff of the Masons, was um, more focused on biblical teaching. Um, and you mentioned uh, the women's, it was the Orange Benevolent Society. Was it? That's right. The, okay. the ladies, um, First Ladies Lodge, they followed the men, but they were uh, an auxiliary to the men, except in, well, as I mentioned, the, the first Orange Lodge was, was set up in Ireland, and they grew in Ireland, and then they became incorporated into the British military, and there were Irish regiments in the British military, and that kind of ex exported the lodge all over the world, so that they're were, became orange lodges in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Bermuda, uh, as well as Canada, uh, former British colonies. And uh, over time, the first lodges in Canada were set up in the early 1800s. Soon as the um, colonization began here uh, in Ontario, the Maritimes, Quebec, New Brunswick, they became the largest. But uh, the ladies got started later in the late 1800s. Uh, the first lodge in Canada was in Hamilton. 
Uh, and uh, as you might expect, again, it was a lady who her parents were members of the Orange Lodge. Her, her father was an Orangeman. Uh, so she was interested in it. And initially, it was this uh, idea of um, Protestant biblical teaching again. They wanted to be able to educate youth in the Protestant religion. Then they started up a lodge in Hamilton, and then it, it kind of grew from there. And one of their primary focuses initially was on uh, young children. And there grew from that junior lodges just for children uh, again. And they were opposed at the beginning to men are known for uh, marching in parades, particularly in Northern Ireland, where it's been unfortunately in the past associated with violence. Uh, well, the women didn't think that their, their role was to be on parade at all. So that she was opposed to marching in parades. Uh, that did change over time because initially the parades were uh, held as part of church services, they would parade from their lodge hall to the church for a church service. And then on the 12th of July, they would always commemorate going back to uh, Ireland, uh, the Battle of the Boyne, where they believed that the victor, King William of Orange, led to uh, a Protestant ascendancy and enlightenment period uh, throughout uh, Europe. William of Orange was originally from the Netherlands, a Protestant who was asked to come to England to take over the throne to defend the Protestant religion and faith at that time. And he just got embroiled in a, in a battle in Ireland, but it was really a European conflict that the Battle of Boyne was one incident in a larger conflict taking place at the time. Interestingly enough, uh, James, who he was fighting against, uh, was opposed by um, the Pope in Rome. The, the Pope had come out supporting um, William of Orange, a strange set of circumstances. Uh, hard to understand it now, but um, that was the history at the time. And as well, there were uh, soldiers fighting on both sides from other countries. Uh, it, it wasn't strictly um, at the time a religious thing. It was more kind of geopolitics and families and how that would all play out. But the Lawrence Lodges that developed in Ireland initially uh, were largely in part due to a conflict that erupted over land and property, as a lot of things can be. And in County Armagh, uh, the, the first members of the lodge were tenant farmers, uh, not well-to-do people, but they were in conflict with other tenant farmers for um, uh, scarce land. And this led to a conflict between the two groups. And the two groups, one group was Roman Catholic and the other was, was Protestant. Uh, after the conflict had happened, the men formed up this lodge and the lodge spread throughout Ireland. I mean, it's now called the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland, except most people would know it's mainly based in Northern Ireland. But at one time, their headquarters was in Dublin. And if you ever travel to Dublin, you can still go on a tour of the city and see the building that's plaqued that was the former headquarters of the Orange Lodge in Ireland. And there is actually still an active lodge in Dublin. It's associated with uh, the university at Dublin. But in Canada, it, it kind of uh, declined as 
its fortune in, I mentioned religion, there were three real elements in Canada developed. One was uh, Protestantism. Uh, the, the second was um, support for the crown, so long as the crown supported the Protestant faith. Uh, and the third was the uh, British heritage associated with going right back to um, uh, early British constitution uh, and British laws that were viewed as being beneficial. So over time, after the First World War, a lot of, a lot of members from lodges joined up in the First World War and then in the second, higher percentages of Orangemen than other Canadians did and suffered as a result of it. And it, it caused many lodges even to close um, from that incident. But as Canada has become um, a more diverse country and, and different views on religion and um, I, I read an interesting study I wasn't aware of, but as long ago as 1960, uh, more than half of Canadians uh, didn't, didn't declare themselves in the uh, Statistics Canada as Christians. So if, if more than 50 years ago, half of Canadians weren't Christians, and then if you divide out of that the percentage that were actually Protestants, uh, and then you think that, well, see, one of the qualifications to apply to become a member of a lodge is you have to say you're a Protestant. So and then not only that, but you have to not only be an interested in Protestant, but you'd have to be interested in the monarchy, and you'd have to be interested in British heritage. So as those things have all become less important in Canada, uh, so has the Orange Lodge. Uh, so that the Orange Lodge dwindled down to the point where uh, one Grand Master back in the 1970s, uh, uh, Leslie Saunders, who some viewed as the uh, one of the most significant Grand Masters, he went on to become, they have an, a larger Grand Lodge Association for the whole world. He became president of that. Uh, he indicated in 1972 or 73 that he said that in Canada, the Orange Lodge had gone the way of the dodo bird. So uh, now it's really interesting though to look back as part of our history to see uh, what was the impact in terms of communities and, and at very different ta time, men, as with now we have, but to lesser degree, the Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club, uh, the, there's the Knights of Columbus, all of these had an impact on on men and they were a reflection of people's thinking. Uh, at one time in Nova Scotia, you had over a hundred lodges from Yarmouth all the way to Lewisburg uh, and areas in between. It was most strong in, in Cape Britain, uh, the mining areas uh, and, and also in Colchester County. Um, so it, it, and you can find gravestones and headstones throughout the province with orange symbols on them. Um, but it's very unique to find, uh, and I'm not aware of any other in the province that were put up by the lodge itself. And here in one location in Torbrook Mines, you have two side by side uh, for one lodge. So you mentioned uh, lodge symbols. So if I was out uh, looking at gravestones, which I've been known to do, um, what what symbols would I be looking for if I wanted to to see that might indicate that a uh, um, that who's lying there was a member of the lodge? 
the most common one is the, the number two and a half. Uh, two and a half uh, goes back to the Bible, two and a half tribes that led the Israelites to uh, safety uh, across the, the river. Uh, and that's, that's part of one of the degrees uh, that orange members learn when they go through their rituals. When, when an orange member is first admitted, they spend a lot of time in lodge really uh, bringing in members and, or they did and, and cycling them through. So that meetings uh, are, uh, there's a business portion to a meeting, but then the next portion of the meeting might be putting on the degree. Uh, so they put on the first degree, which is called the orange degree. Uh, and, and it involves memory work, very much like Masonic Lodge. Um, where different members of the lodge have a different role to play out uh, that uh, describes a story from the Bible. Um, <laughs> Brian, I was looking at uh, online for some, uh, I think it was uh, in Ontario for census information. And you know where they describe their religion mm -hmm. um, and whether it was Roman Catholic or Presbyterian or Methodist. Well, I came across this one who had marked his religion down as Orangeman. You know, Orangeman, that was his religion. Now, this was from the early 1900s in rural Ontario. Now, that's how he, that's how strongly he viewed um, what he was doing in Lodge. Um, and I know it, it's, it's not the same, maybe, but in some families uh, years ago, it, it's the same idea when you, you go through cemeteries and you'll see a lot of Masonic symbols, you know. Uh, the orange symbol represents the same thing, that, that for these men, um, that was a part of their life. That's how they identified them. They not just identify themselves in terms of who their family was, who their parents, who their children, but their faith or their religion and the lodge that they belong to. And this particular uh, lodge in Torbrook, where you found the, 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 the stones, um, tell me a little bit about that and what you found out about that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, these two stones are, are, are side by side. And this, this cemetery, interestingly enough, is a historic cemetery. It's, it's, uh, it had received uh, designated historic status. The, uh, the father of, uh, of one Canadian prime minister is there. Uh, and uh, one of the stones is to a young uh, man, James Akles, who tragically was killed in a mining accident. And it reads on it, erected by the members of Loyal Orange Lodge number 1624 to the, member of, to the memory of brother James Eccles of the above lodge who was accidentally killed in Torbrook Iron Mines on the 7th of April, 1894, age 23 years, he was a man loyal and true. That's where I got the, the title for this book, Loyal and True. Uh, and it makes you think about what does loyal and true mean? Well, there was a, a popular or orange folk song, um, which I called the Protestant Boys. I, you might have heard of the, the, the verse before, but but it, it goes, it starts out, the Protestant boys are loyal and true, stout-hearted in battle and stout-handed too. The Protestant boys are true to the last and faithful and peaceful 
when danger has passed. And oh, they bear and proudly wear the colors that floated o'er many a fray, where cannon were flashing and sabers were, were clashing, the Protestant boys still carried the day. So uh, it, just a part of Irish folklore, but beside that stone is another stone, another headstone to this, this fellow member of that lodge. It's to William Nowland. It reads, sacred to the memory of William Nowland, late county master of Annapolis County, Loyal Orange Association, died February 26, 1896, age 59 years, erected by his brother Orangeman as a tribute of respect and esteem. So, and, and as I mentioned, that, that cemetery also has the, the grave of, of Reverend Charles Tupper, who was father of Sir Charles Tupper. Um, and uh, Tupper was Prime Minister of Canada in 1896, but also Premier of Nova Scotia from 1864 to 1867. So it, 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 a lot of interesting gravestones in, the, in that cemetery. And they have, in the summertime, um, COVID has interfered with that, but they do put on tours. And, and in the evening, they have um, members of the congregation and, and other volunteers dress up and act out. Uh, people will, will study the lives of, of past members of the, the church. There used to be a Baptist church near there. Um, or the lives of people that are interred in the ground there now and try to um, dress up and, and act out the person who they believe is buried there and in, in, in some part of their life history, some part of, of who they were at that time. So. Okay. Uh, that's a, uh, I, I find that really fascinating, especially about Charles Tupper because I had uh, recently, well, well in uh, exploring <laughs> graves um, over here in PEI um, found that Charles Tupper Sr. who was buried in Torbrook, he was the the first minister called minister of the church just down the road for me, um, which was a church. Uh, what the community was originally um, United Empire Loyalists. In fact, there's two graveyards in the community, um, one for the Baptist church and one for the Methodist church that specifically are designated where um, Empire Loyalists are buried. Um, so. Yeah, that that's so. The do they act out these these men like James Eccles and when they do the reenact? That, that hasn't happened yet. Okay. They haven't. They 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 they've been dealing with more. I mean, um, what's uppermost or or popular nowadays? Unfortunately, you know, years before vaccine, there were tragic. There are a lot of young children, you know, that were that that disease and. And so one of the ones they act out is a is a, a girl who lost her life tragically. Uh, they also do Tupper, uh, the the minister, uh, characters that have a broader understanding and appeal. Uh, in order to do an orangeman, I think there first have to be a kind of an, an introductory explanation as to who this was and why he was here. And and it, 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 it the lodge in that area is he. 
one of the, the things that's always thrown out with Orange Lodge is, well, they're anti-Catholic, but the, the Orange Lodge members, they prefer to think of themselves as pro-Protestant. Uh, and the in that circumstance, you see, and in a lot of places where there were Orange Lodges, you, you kind of would wonder, well, how could they be anti-Catholic? Because there were no Catholics in that part of the country. And the, the same thing existed at this time in around Torbrook Mines. There were no Catholics. There were, it was all Protestants, you see. Uh, how the lodge started up there, I, I believe, was it started up when the mines, when they discovered iron ore in there, and they brought in a lot of men from away. Uh, and in particular, there were some who came over from the Londonderry area, Nova Scotia, where they all already had some facilities and where they were actually um, using the iron ore. Uh, so, and they, and it tra in bringing in these men who some of them may have already belonged to another orange lodge, um, they were, a lot of them were single men. What are they gonna do with their time uh, at night? Uh, a, a lodge got started up and then it's hard for us to think about it now, but at that time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, religion was a lot more in people's minds, and it was, uh, and, and the church was, and 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 um, Baptist and, and Presbyterian and even Anglican church ministers were a lot more strident in trying to get their message out. And another way they could do this was to become a chaplain in an Orange Lodge like this. Um, in fact, in Nova Scotia, they had uh, an organizer of the Orange Lodge in the 1920s who went throughout the province. And uh, his name was Edgar Morris, uh, Reverend Edgar Morris. And he was also the uh, Anglican minister uh, for churches around, uh, well, in Ontario and in Quebec, Stellarton, Nova Scotia. And he became the rector of St. Matthias Church in Halifax. Uh, in fact, he went on to become the, the president of the Dominion Protestant League across all of Canada, which was equivalent kind of a, a union of Protestant churches. And at the same time, he was the organizer, which what meant his responsibility was to start up new orange lodges throughout Nova Scotia. So you can see Clearly, it was heavily religious-based um, and not really very much focused on what happened in Ireland in the Battle of the Point. <laughs> it, it was more on getting the message out. And, and I think as well here with this, this lodge in particular in Torbrook Mines, the name they picked, they, they chose for their lodge was Spurgeon. And Spurgeon was a, a very famous uh, Baptist preacher in England. He was, he was called the Prince of Preachers. That's right, because he spoke, I've read some of his sermons, and he all of his sermons he did, he wrote them down and he distributed them, over 6,000 sermons, and um, he was known as a plain speaker, and he appealed directly to the people. That's, I think, what appealed to uh these Orange Lodge members as well. They were trying to understand more about this Protestant faith and, and you know, what the secrets of it were and the, and the Bible and everything else. And he was putting it in layman's easy to understand language for them, having probably read some of his sermons. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting though, because you do see lodges and looking at some of the, 
as I mentioned earlier, there were over 100 lodges at one time. Well, some of these lodges did take names from Ireland, you know, like Enniskillen, uh, which is the name of a community in line, or, or uh, Sisters of Ulster, you know, and Ulster is a province in Ireland. So they were directly making that connection. And those lodges were founded, I think, partly too by immigrants who came over from Ireland. This lodge here in Torbrook Mines was more than likely second and third generation Canadians. You know, and their focus was really on doing something in the evening and at night and learning more. And, and they were influenced and led in that by the local church. And then as the, the mines declined there and closed, that's when this lodge also closed in the early 1920s. So but it, it's, it's, it's so interesting, though, to, to, for me to have found those, those headstones, which don't exist anywhere else in the province, erected by a lodge. And at that time, side by side, nowhere else in Canada do you find two like that. So their, their spirit of, I don't know if you, brotherhood you want to call it at that time, they must have had a strong sense of a, a group as a lodge at that time for a short number of years, a few decades, the, the, the tight community closeness of them, um, you know, in, in what they believed they were doing. They did have a county lodge in Annapolis, like throughout the province, they also were organized into counties. And so they'd have county meetings as well as local meetings. And they'd choose at their lodge, each lodge would choose a, a couple of nominees to go to the county meeting every year. And then they would organize, I mentioned that they, they would, they would celebrate um, the 12th of July. Well, they used to hold other uh, events before Christmas and um, at neighboring lodges, um, social events. It, I, I, there was a lodge in Middleton that, that the lodge in Torbrook Mines was fairly close to. And some of those activities are, I was able to find through looking at old newspapers. So in addition to, to the public archives in Halifax uh, has many of the reports and old records of the former Orange Lodges in Nova Scotia. This is the same case for most provinces. Um, if anyone who has had or is interested in learning about the history of an Orange Lodge, whether you might've had a grandfather or a relative who might've been a member, you may not be able to find that member's name because unfortunately very few members lists exist. Uh, what you will find though, if that member was ever held in office like a secretary of a lodge or a, a master of a lodge or a treasurer of a lodge, then you do have a good chance of finding his name because the, those names occur in the old reports. Um, so I was able to look through the records in Halifax, the public archives and they have records there for men's as well as ladies' lodges. One of the uh, past mistresses in, in Nova Scotia went on to become mistress of Canada. And, and all of her personal papers, she donated to the public archives, which if, if anyone was interested in looking or learning more about that, it's a, very interesting. Okay. So, unfortunately, there's not much information online historical. Yeah, you have to actually find the time to be able to go um, to the public archives. And, and looking through old newspapers, 
I was focused on the newspapers for Tor Brook that covered that area. Uh, and in those days, all of the local clubs, like the Masons, uh, the Odd Fellows, uh, and the Orange Lodge, <laughs> put reports in the paper, you know, and, and reports of every, whatever happened at the meeting, you know, who was there and what they did, if they were given a little present or an award, and, and if the ladies served tea afterwards or when the next meeting was. So I was able to identify through the records uh, and the reports uh, 23 past members of this lodge okay. uh, in Torbrook Mines. And I, I list them in the, in the book, uh, as well as, um, you know, some of them were, were buried in other cemeteries around that area. In the uh, United Church Cemetery, uh, there are quite a few buried. Uh, I did find one McConnell, no relation to me that I'm aware of, but there's a, there was a Samuel McConnell. So, uh, and, but he actually died almost 100 years ago, 1922. <laughs> so you never know when you go down these holes what you're going to come up with. But uh, I found it to be interesting, and, I, and I'd wanted to do something like that too, just, you know, to, because people ask me sometimes if, because I, I make mention of a headstone that I noticed that is an orangeman's headstone, then they'll ask me for a well, I knew somebody that was involved, my wife's brother or something, you know, or my wife's great uncle or something. I think he was a member of it. Well, what was that about? And uh, like a lot of things that in the past that, it, that were popular, like the foresters is another lodge that used to be around it, uh, that's kind of disappeared. Uh, Canada is it, not just Canada, but other countries, it, many changes over time. This is a change in Canada. So what did they do besides their, their meetings? Um, like if you were to, to explain to somebody about them, what, what did they do besides just their own biblical education and, um, you know, gathering together um, and marching on the 12th of July? Um, what, what, what type of things were they involved in in the community? Well, I think they, they began in outreach for their own members, like supporting their own members with food. And uh, they established an insurance fund, an orange insurance that still exists to this day. But it expanded out from their membership to anyone can get orange insurance now, life insurance, uh, health insurance for their members. Um, then uh, in their 1920s throughout Canada, uh, at that time, probably due to the economic hardship, and there were many orphans and young children, uh, they established orphanages uh, in almost every province. Um, there was uh, one in New Brunswick, Quebec, and in Nova Scotia, the Orange Lodges, the, the men as well as the ladies, established one at Bible Hill. These were totally funded by the Orange members. Each Orange Lodge took up collection. Uh, to pay for the initially for the purchase of the land, then the building itself, and then every year uh, for the um, the manager and the, the the couple that were there, and then the foodstuffs for the children. Um, so that was a tremendous undertaking uh, to take that on. Was that because um, you know on the Catholic side when you talked about the divide Catholic and Protestant, 
Catholic, the Catholic churches are, you know, had ran their orphanages as their churches and they had, um, and where so many different denominations, even what wasn't an organized, uh, as much organized for, or able to, for some of these bigger, bigger tasks. I, I want to say, like, I always say Canada used to have the, the greatest social safety net. They used to have the church that used to do all these things. We depend on the government now or um, churchgoers that would provide for the, the fatherless and the widow. Um, is, it, is it sort of that that drove them to do it? Or is, is that one of the things because there wasn't any other Protestant organization doing it as much? Well, the uh, see the thing about the Orange Lodge was you you could be a member of any church, so yeah. it was kind of an umbrella organization for, yeah. for Methodists and Ang- Anglicans, and but I think it comes from um, their um, religious biblical mm-hmm. idea about helping others, and, um, and not to sound too naive about this, but I but I think that that was uh, largely the intention, and the, and the ladies took a large role in this too. Uh- I, I guess I understood that. I was just thinking that because they're what, like you said, they could be members of any of the Protestant denominations, just where there was multiple little denominations or so it gave them, a, I guess, a, a greater benefit to be able to do it all to come together and do it. And uh, Yeah. And then you see over time, the, the government took over most of these orphanages, the changes in laws and the, the, the lodge at the same time, these Lawrence lodges started to decline. So they didn't have the financial capability to support these homes mm-hmm. um, in, in many cases, but uh, they did also then start to uh, become more community focused in terms of support and, and uh, raising funds for not just Protestant groups, but for the community they lived in. Uh, or the or the province or even the country like it raised funds and donated to the local hospitals um, and, and everyone would benefit from it you know or to Easter seal or United Way um, uh, sometimes uh, it, it really just was up to each individual lodge because the lodges ran themselves independently so any member could propose something and if he could get enough support within the lodge then the, the lodge would be off fundraising to try to raise money for that project. You know, it, it could be even something like uh, a relative of his uh, had developed a health uh, issue, you know, and he, and he wanted to help out and thought maybe he could encourage his lodge to, to get behind him and do that. So, and then other things, I think, in the community, you know, if they were building uh, a new baseball field, you know, and the kids all needed, you know, equipment or that type of thing that, um, the, the, the juniors that they had, um, the uh, junior Orange Lodges and the Orange Young Britons, um, they sponsored uh, uh, baseball games sometimes, community games. Uh, and uh, years ago, there was a, not Mickey Mantle, but um, back in the 30s, some of the American baseball players were encouraged to come to Canada on tours. Uh, and I remember reading that the in Westville, Nova Scotia, uh, the law, the, the Orange Young Britons there um, hosted a baseball game. 
Um, and there were pro players there from the US uh, to try to you know, encourage the community to come out as well. So it, over time, it, and then they even became, you know, as part of the, the requirements to become an Orangeman, you were supposed to be a Protestant. Well, that even got eased off. Um, you had, were supposed to be a Protestant, but you could be married to a Roman Catholic. You didn't, your whole family didn't have to be Protestant. So uh, it's, and, and I, I'm talking about Canada, you know, and, and, and different than, than, than I, and I mean, I read an article where 30 years ago in, in New Brunswick, um, they were getting very upset with the loss of their members there. And, and they were blaming it like the media was on, you know, events in, or, in Northern Ireland and bombs going off there and people associating that with the, a religious conflict and the Orangemen must be part of it. And, and the Orange Lodge in New Brunswick even went so far as to suggest that, uh, there should be no more parades because we're losing members, you know, that, so that different areas had different focus, you know, in, in New Brunswick, they changed from having parades to having picnics on the 12th of July, um, because um, that's, you know, what their members felt. Uh, they were still observing the day and it was in terms of what the community really could understand and appreciate. Um, it, it, uh, it's hard to generalize with the Orange Lodge because just as Canada is diverse, you know, and differences between the West and the East, I think that the Orange Lodge in Canada was different too. The, the Orange Lodge in Newfoundland was originally started, oddly enough, by um, some Orangemen who went there from Nova Scotia to help it get going. Like in Newfoundland, it got started quite late, and and you see, there aren't any. Most of the Orange Lodge members there had no connection to Ireland whatsoever. The the Irish in Newfoundland were Catholic, not Protestant. So the Orange members there in the, were all largely English in their background, some Scottish, but then but it went over extremely well in these outports. Uh, and again, here it's the idea, you know, the outports all along the fishing outports all around Newfoundland. Well, it wasn't, again, an anti-Catholic thing because most of these little outports, there was only one church of one religion, you know, and uh, it was something for the men to do, you know, and, and it really took off because, it, you know, there wasn't television in those days and maybe not that many of them had the ability to even get books and read or do something else. So uh, the Orange Lodge became something that they to the point that even I mean Joey Smallwood the father of confederation from Newfoundland they talk about him he was member of Orange Lodge in St. John's I mean the, the last father of confederation to have been an Orangeman I guess was him so and and he wasn't the first his father before after his father was a member and his son were, was a member so it, it it's it's hard to really generalize about Orange Lodges. You know, the experience in different parts of the country, I think has reflected the community that the people are living in. Uh, the only underlying underlying thing, I, it seems fair to say is they were focused on at that time, what they believed to be the Protestant faith and how it could fit into their life and be beneficial to them. And to a varying degree, they also all uh, supported British heritage. In Newfoundland, you know, it was the last province really to break off its colonial ties. 
so a lot of the English there would have felt and having served, you know, with the British in the First World War and in other empire wars before that, I'm sure, uh, this would have been part of their family tradition uh, to be loyal to the monarchy and the, and the British heritage. So, I mean, it sounds like they actually had a quite a big impact on, on communities and societies, um, you know, and they, they continued to do what they could to, um, as they declined. But um, I know, yeah, like they, like you said, the, the orphanages and hospitals and um, different things that they, they were responsible for, even as you mentioned, their active service in uh, the first and second world war. Um, so it, it does seem like there, there's ha- having the, the, the orange men was definitely a positive impact on the community. And, um, and it's something that when, if we're finding out about our ancestors or finding out about where they, they live, that it's a, um, you know, it's something they, they should be proud of and, and not just think, like you said, they, people associated with in, um, the the religious wars or conflicts in Ireland, but they it was more about the actual benefit that they had. Well, I, I, on, I think, on our country. I think you're right, Brian. It's as as with anything, though. You have to. I mean, there's good and bad in everything, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to until you know the facts. And I mean, my grandfather actually came to Canada as a result of of that conflict in Ireland. Uh, but after he arrived in Toronto, he, he had trained as a garage mechanic and he was also a veteran of the First World War. But, and he kept his lodge membership and then he went to Northern Ontario and he, where he also had a garage and he belonged to the, the Kiwanis Club there, up there as well and, and joined town council. And he was very civic minded. He became mayor of this little town in, in Northern Ontario. Um, we used to worry about him because when he used to come and visit us, and at the time we lived in Southern Ontario, he would pick up hitchhikers on the, on the road. And, and he only had one eye. He'd lost one of his eyes in World War I as well. Plus he had shrapnel to the stomach and down one leg. He wasn't in the greatest of health. And here he is picking up hitchhikers on the road, you know, just because it was somebody that was in need. And, and then when my, my bo- father was executor of his estate, uh, and, and he called my daddy and he had one heart attack before he passed away and he wasn't well. And we went up to see him and, and he gave my dad two lists. He said, you know, in the will, after you sell everything off, there, he, he, the people that owed the, the garage money, that owed the car dealership money, he'd given them a list of names for people that could afford to pay. And he said, those people, that's all right. You can go to collect from them. But these others... Just let them go. You know, they're having a hard time of it. So I'm not, I'm, I don't want you to try to collect the money from them. So, and he used to teach Sunday school lessons in, in, at the, pres, in the Presbyterian church in, in this little town. So I think it was part of who he was. You know, like nowadays, if I was asked and most people were asked how they'd identify themselves, I'd probably do it in terms of, you know, a, a father, a, a husband, uh, uh, this is who my parents were and, you know, I'm a Canadian, but I think years ago in my grandparents' generation, I think their faith, their religion was also very important to them. 
and that channeled all of their decisions. Yeah, it seems like a as as much as um, religion and faith sometimes in modern context is seen as a a, a negative. You, you know, definitely a positive there. In there, you know, um, imagine if there was more people like your grandfather, and that's what they they fought when they went to the grave of, you know, though I'm owed a debt by this person, you know, uh, that willingness to forgive it and know who like, like that, that needed the help or like you said, picking up hitchhikers just because he thought it was a person in need that, that needed something. And it's not something that comes naturally to people nowadays that they, they necessarily think of others. Um, so there was more orange men still with, out there in the in our communities now and people who, who put those those thoughts ahead we might be a little better off in the, our day and age and uh, a, a little better towards treating each other as uh, as canadians and as um humans just in a better context well, it, it goes both ways, though, yeah. because I mean, the biggest example of that is, and, and the most prominent Orangeman was uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada, was also an, an Orangeman who came from Scotland. Mm -hmm. And some people believe that the whole idea of confederation, you see, prior to confederation, there was something called the Grand Orange Lodge of British America, and it was divided into jurisdictions. Those jurisdictions and the way they were set up underneath them as counties and then uh, provinces and then counties was what he envisioned, ended up envisioning for Canada, the, the provincial setup that, that came into play with Confederation followed what had already been set up by this uh, Orange Association. So, but as we know, I mean, some people don't view everything he did in, in today's light as as acceptable you know he was involved unfortunately with residential schools and some other matters that uh, cause a lot of pain to people so it, it's it, it and I'm sure my grandfather as much as you know uh, the stories I tell about him uh, there are probably other stories that he seemed you know like when my my dad and, and his brother used to get into arguments my grandfather had a pair of, two pair of boxing gloves and he used to push them downstairs into the basin to, to settle it. You know, and, I, and my dad said that the, he always was afraid of that because his brother, who was two years older than him, weighed about 50 pounds heavier than him too. So my dad knew that if he, if he tripped or fell down and Bill got on top of him, he'd be in trouble. It wasn't a fair contest. And, and probably not the, the, you know, the, the, the real way to settle disputes. So, but funny. So it, it probably did help your brother, uh, your father to, <laughs> to know when, what's the right fight to pick, I guess, sometimes, because he knew the consequences. Right. But um, no, you, you all know you're right. And then uh, again, you know, it's, it's not all, everything is um, necessarily positive, but just even, even just, those those positive things and you know thinking about um our our country and our our nation as a as a, a whole as a and and actually caring for it um whether some people much like parents or grandparents might not have 
cared, uh, you know, in our context, what was best, but they, they, I bet you your grandfather thought he was doing what was right by them to, to make them um, there. So, yeah, no, I, you know, it's, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you wrote this and I'm glad to have had the time to talk to you a little bit about the, the Orangeman. Um, so just on the last thing. So if I'm discovering Orangeman in my, um, in my family tree, uh, I, I've, I've gone and I've come across maybe the, some of these, these symbols. Um, so you mentioned the public archives. Um, is there other, other sources, other um, books that have been written as well that might document some of these different lodges or groups throughout Canada or? Well, in, in uh, there was a, a book written uh, initially back in the 80s by two college professors, Houston and Smith, called The Sash Canada War. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was published by uh, University of Toronto. Um, both of them were from Ireland, not from Northern Ireland, and they were uh, doing time here at Canadian universities. Um, it's a tremendous introduction. It's a, it's a kind of a historical, sociological, uh, geopolitical study of, of the Orange Lodges right across Canada uh, and refers to their strengths and weaknesses and what happened to them, how they grew, how they passed out, uh, all of that. Since that, uh, there really haven't been anything books published until uh, my interest in it. And prior to this book, as I mentioned, the, we have the, as part of the Loyal Orange Association, you have the Men's Lodge uh, called, the, shortened to the LOL, Loyal Orange Lodges. You have the Ladies Lodges, which is the Ladies Orange Benevolent Association, the LOBA. You had the Youth Lodges, Orange Young Britons, OYB. As with the Masonic, um, Masonic members, after they've obtained their degrees, can go on uh, if, they, if they so desire uh, and uh, become Shriners. Uh, the only qualification to be a Shriner is you have to be a Mason first. Uh, the Orange Lodges, uh, became affiliated with what's called the Royal Black Preceptory um, and Royal Black Knights. Um, it is more religious even than the Orange Lodge and within it are 11 degrees. Um, the 11th degree uh, is called the Red Cross uh, and it's associated with, uh, with Easter. Uh, this is another symbol that appears on gravestones sometimes of orange members, if they were uh, uh, on their headstone, if they're a member of the Orange Lodge and went on to become a member of a Black Lodge, you'll find both the two and a half on the left-hand side and on the right side, you'll find a cross. Now you might think at first, well, they're, they're just religious or something, but you'll, you'll see that cross and sometimes you'll see a number beside it. The number will be the number of the preceptory that they belong to. I found that a couple of times for lodges in Nova Scotia. Well, before I found these headstones, a year before I found these headstones, I found another headstone in Londonderry, in the cemetery in Londonderry. And it's the only one, oddly enough, there's something about headstones and me finding them. And, and it was erected by a black preceptory to one of their members in Londonderry. 
and it's a massive stone. In fact, I did an article on it for uh, History Nova Scotia, Historic Nova Scotia, and it's on the internet. Uh, I've done five articles for them, historical articles. I also did an article for them on the um, the monument in Sydney to the veterans of the war, First and Second World War, who were members of the Orange Lodge in Cape Breton County. Um, when I was in Sydney, and I, I lived in St Sydney for a year as a college student, well, after college articling, and I was never even aware of this monument. I, my apartment was right around the corner from it. But later, uh, visiting back there with family, I came upon this and discovered what it was, and no one else really knew anything about it. So I researched it and took pictures of it and put that on the internet. But coming back to the Royal Black Knights, um, I discovered that my grandfather, if you were serious about the Orange Lodge, I, I, the more I read about it, I thought, well, he likely became a knight as well. And I was able to find the record for that. He belonged to a lodge in Northern Ontario and a preceptor there. So then I did more research on the Black Knights and I published a book on the Royal Black Knights. Uh, and it lists the lodges in Nova Scotia and across Canada for all of the preceptories that were started up. Um, now there weren't as many preceptories in Black Knights obviously as there were Orangemen because not everybody who joined an Orange Lodge was that interested in going on. Um, but so that's part of the Orange family that exists out there and then Further in my genealogy, I mentioned, I think I had a cousin who was active in the ladies in Saskatchewan and she helped to found the Orange Home for Protestant youth, now for all orphans, uh, which is at Indian Head. I discovered that she had, she never married. She, she went to business college and managed an apartment building in Regina and became active in the ladies lodge there uh, became grand mistress for the whole province of, of all the Orange Lodges. So that got me interested. I did nothing really about the Orange Lodges for the ladies. I researched that and published another book on the LOBA. Okay. So uh, I've done the, the, the Black, the LOBA, and now this book on the Orange. And those are the only other published books. I think it's because... Uh, if you're not a university professor, um, maybe you're, you don't really have the interest in this. My interest again, initially was this family connection. And then when I was in school, before I went on to a career in law, my first degree was in history. So I had that background and historical interest, but I mean, I still run up against it, you know, and, and I know other, I've written articles about the United Empire Loyalists and that's fine, although, it, some people aren't keen on that either because they associate United Empire Loyals with British and colonialism, and that's all kind of not the greatest. But it's the same thing with the Orange Lodge. I've run into some people who, oh yeah, my grandfather was in the Orange Lodge. And then I find out that their grandfather was in the Orange Lodge too, but please don't mention that to anyone, you know, because it's this idea again that they were anti what's acceptable. Uh, and you don't want to have your own name associated with something that's anti-unacceptable. So, but I try to take the broader view here that there's good and bad in everyone and everything. Uh, and, and the Orange Lodges, as I mentioned in Canada, went the way of the dodo bird many years ago. Um, 
my main interest here is historical uh, and just trying to, I became involved by trying to learn more about it. I don't live in Northern Ireland and I can't comment on the situation in Northern Ireland. No. So, but uh, yeah, if anyone else is interested, I can send you the links, Brian, but, but uh, I also have other books that are available. I've published a total of nine books now. Four of them are on uh, United Empire Loyalists. One is on the Ulster Scots and the others are on the Orange and all of them were initiated by my own genealogical research and in being able to find, and I was very fortunate to find some of the records I did. I had one lady who found out when I was researching about the ladies lodge, she was the niece of a former grandmistress of, of Canada. She sent me her mother's files and that was really helpful. Uh, and, and so I, I did a book just entitled The Grand Mistress about her. Uh, she also sent me her mother's regalia, like her collar, you know, and I took pictures of it uh, and I include those in the book for others to see and enjoy. I've, I've had some people contact me, some, some women at, in North Sydney, in, in Nova Scotia and Sydney itself, were particularly strong in the orange, perhaps at one time stronger than anywhere else in Nova Scotia. In part, I think it went back to the number of men who were called in there into industrial Cape Britain for work uh, in the mining. And there were, there were supervisors who came from away from Toronto and Scotland and England. And some of those supervisors already had an, a lodge experience. And when they got there, they were looking for something to do and they put themselves into the lodge and encouraged others. A different time in Canada's history. It, it is. And it's, you know, it's uh, amazing just to, to find out these, these things. I find it's useful because it puts our history in context, especially when you can make that personal connection like you did. It, it makes you kind of, appreciate our our own history and the uh, the communities and the people that came before us the good and the bad um you know of of what's been um what's transpired so uh, again thank you very much i appreciate talking to you today thank you brian I'm wanting to invite you back in two weeks time for another edition of how we got here um, like I said I'm going to be mixing up a little this this year um, my next episode I'm actually going to talk a little about my own family and I'm going to build upon what uh, we talked about with Brian I'm going to talk about how though my family weren't members of the Orange Lodge well not the ones I'm going to be talking about but I'm going to be talking about a, a connection that my family has to them um, and some of the benevolent work that they have had done uh, in Atlantic Canada. So join me in two weeks and don't forget to subscribe to um, my YouTube channel, How We Got Here Genealogy, as I'll be posting some new videos there very shortly. 
And again, join me in two weeks. I'm looking forward to it. And you have a, a wonderful day. Keep searching for your family and keep making those connections. Thank you for listening to this episode of How We Got Here. Make sure you check out the show notes for more information about today's topic and guests. How We Got Here is hosted and produced by Brian Nash. Title music from Tribute to O'Carolan by Luna Bajowski. 